Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Joe Swick. We're at Medici Vineyard in Newburgh. It's June 25th, 2020. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, uh, biggest question, why wine? Wine um, was not something that I grew up with. It, it found me. It, it found me uh, in the form of uh, a retail job at a natural food store, that being Whole Foods Market. Uh, back in the day, 20 years ago, kind of before they became um, a little more advanced than what they are now. And um, I, was, I was going to school, didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still don't know, actually. <laughs> um, and, um, and I was working the sales floor at that Whole Foods and um, got to meet a lot of winemakers who at the time were self-distributing and dropping off their orders. Um, Andrew Rich, Chase Summers, John Paul Cameron, off the top of my head, David, David O'Reilly of Owen Rowe, Peter Rosbach who used to make wine here, Shanann. Um, so it, it all started uh, through a job at a natural food store. So I've had two jobs in my life. Uh, I've worked in natural food stores. When I, when I went to Beaverton High School. Uh, when I was in high school, I was bagging groceries at Nature's, uh, like a, what is now New Seasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I've only had two jobs. I worked in, in health food stores and in wineries doing cellar work. And here I am 20 years later. <laughs> so you, you grew up in Oregon, obviously. Uh, family's been here for a while. Did you have any concept of Oregon having a wine industry as you were growing up? Not really. Um, I knew that we grew Pinot Noir here, but um, alcohol wasn't really, um, you know, my parents didn't drink wine and it wasn't a part of our lives, so I didn't actually taste wine until I was legally allowed to do so. (laughs) (laughs) So as you're you're working at the the grocery store and you're meeting these winemakers, what what appealed to you about about the, the, the job and what appealed to you about the product itself? Uh, the craft, um, the fact that, that these producers were doing everything with, with, uh, with their craft, um, with their product, the thing they were producing, it seemed like it was very artisanal and very sincere. And, uh, you know, keep in mind this was uh, around the year 2000, 2001. Um, and um, it just seemed like a really honest, job mm-hmm. and a way to be creative mm-hmm. so as you kind of discovered your your interest in it tell me what the next steps were in actually getting into the industry so at that time when I was working at Whole Foods I was working um, I was working a few different jobs around the store I'd cashier sometimes I'd work in the uh, on the wine floor selling wines retail and tasting wines at that time too and then once in a while, I, I would work in the um, shipping and receiving in the back of the store, and uh, I learned how to drive a forklift, which is a very important skill to have working in the cellar. Being a winemaker, you have to learn to be a good forklift driver. And so I um, started uh, talking with David O'Reilly. I was a big fan of his wines when I first started tasting wines. Uh, my evolution with, with wine started with big, bigger, jammy, over-the-top, extracted, higher-alcohol high wines with a nice... Nice dollop of uh, oak on them. And um, at that time, at least, those wines were very fashionable. And um, I was a big fan of David O'Reilly's wines. I still am. And uh, he offered me an internship when he was, he was about at the level that I am right now, around 5,000 cases per year production. And um, I, was his, I was his one intern for 2003. And that was my first seller job. And uh, it's the rest is kind of history after that. It, that's that's when it started. What were your first impressions of that part of the industry of working in the cellar? Um, my first impressions were that it was very physical work. Uh, it was it was very um, uh, not very glamorous. Uh, I, I thought that I would be involved with the wine a lot more. I thought that I would be tasting wines and. 
be more involved with the winemaker. But um, a, lot, a lot of what winery work is, is doing the same thing over and over again and, uh, and cleaning. And so that, that first harvest was basically just me cleaning everything and getting ready for um, the winery to receive grapes and, and getting ready for fermentation. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of, um, a lot of long hours. Um, and I, I just, I, I liked that. I like, I like the abuse of that, and I still do. I, I still love harvest as much as um, physically, um, psychologically, emotionally, it really drains me. I still love it every year, I love doing it. See, it's an interesting, interesting to describe your first the job that way, and yet still like long hours, unglamorous, away from the product, and yet still be attracted to it. So, uh, was there? Could you kind of see on the horizon like what you'd be doing in the future, like what it would lead to, and and what maybe like what you're doing now? I mean, did you just kind of have that notion of like if I worked this out, this is what will happen in the future, and I can do this myself, or were you still kind of finding yourself at that point? I was definitely still finding myself. Uh, Cellar work, some people get it right away, some people don't. Uh, I, I was definitely not a person that got it right away. I got into wine through, uh, through tasting. Um, and and um, at that point, I didn't know that I wanted to get into wine production. I knew that I wanted to be involved with wine. I, I knew at that point that's what I wanted to do as a career. Mm -hmm. But uh, wine, wine cellar work, wine production didn't come to me right away. One of many dogs here. <laughs> um, and uh, during that time, I was also taking uh, classes at uh, Chemeketa and uh, had had a few really good teachers there at the time. I, I don't think they're there anymore, but uh, Barney from Taiyi, mm -hmm. uh, Rick Maffitt from Mystic, mm -hmm. um, a gentleman who owned Seven Springs Vineyard. Al McDonald. Al McDonald. And... Um, and so that, that, that and my, my first few internships were kind of uh, where I was feeling it out. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to really decide that, uh, that production was where I wanted to go. At the beginning it was more, I was thinking maybe I'd uh, uh, want to be a psalm. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would have worked out, but <laughs> um, yeah. Was, do you remember, was there a moment or was there a harvest or was there a season where that kind of clicked in and production became the goal and, and you sort of set, up, set you off down that path? Yeah, I think it took me about year eight of, uh, so I did a lot of internships. Mm -hmm. um, I, di I didn't have a, a really permanent job uh, in the wine industry until about 10 years after I'd started uh, interning. So I did, um, I did 15 harvests all around the world in 10 years. So I was going back and forth between Australia and New Zealand uh, Australia, New Zealand, and the Northern Hemisphere, Oregon or, or California. So I, I, um, I, I, I did kind of go uh, the academic route a little bit just to get a, a good base, but um, for the most part, my, my schooling in wine has been through the, the school of hard knocks. <laughs> and um, I'd say it was probably uh, 2010 working in the Doro Valley with uh, Kneeport was where I, I had really decided that's what I wanted to do, wine production. And, um, but at that point, I never thought that I would be able to be doing what I'm doing right now. Um, yeah. So, so before we get to what you're doing now, let's talk about that. 15 harvests in 10 years, that's quite a, quite a journey, uh, travel and, and a lot of work. What did you kind of learn about yourself along the way? And what did you kind of learn about um, what did you kind of take with you uh, from those various experiences? Um, what, what I took from all of them was uh, work experience, working with different types, different personalities, shy people, very outgoing people, uh, pe people that were very grumpy. Um, and I got to see a lot of people make mistakes in the winery that I ended up not making by myself. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I took away from working so many harvests is when, when I was ready to make my own wines, um, I felt very, very confident doing so because I, I'd seen so many people and been inspired by so many people with the way they thought, their mm -hmm. technique. But I'd also seen winemakers make the mistakes um, in the cellar that mm -hmm. I 
didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what about the obviously different different regions and and different obviously very different. Everything about those industries is quite different from Australia, New Zealand, California, Oregon. Were there? Uh, what brought you back to Oregon? Was there, was there ever a thought of making wine somewhere else? Was there ever a, were you ever a, intrigued by staying in New Zealand permanently or California permanently? Um, let's see. No, Australia and New Zealand, no. Um, the industry there, working in a, in a winery, uh, it requires a lot more on the academic side for you to be a winemaker. Uh, less so on the um, practical skills. And to me, it seemed a lot more industrial. It felt like I was working in a factory. Uh, you know, I had high-vis vests on all the time. I had a hard hat. Um, I went through two or three weeks of training uh, about safety procedures and, and um, stuff like that. And um, uh, unless I was able to to start my own thing there, which I think uh, with with customs, uh, you know, and um, I don't think it was really very feasible. So the the reason that I chose Oregon, uh, I had a choice between France and Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, I was married to a, a French woman for a while, and um, we had to choose between uh, staying in France and um, in Southwest France, where mm-hmm. she's from. Mm-hmm and moving to Oregon. And um, at the time we were thinking Bordeaux because she had a job offer there. And I just couldn't see myself uh, with with not speaking French and being an American trying to come over and make wine in Bordeaux. Uh, And and I also didn't have the finances to be able to do that as well. So I'm from Oregon, I'm a fifth generation Oregonian. Both sides of my family are from Eastern Oregon, the Dalles. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is home. And I saw a lot of uh, opportunity, especially uh, at the time, about 10 years ago, the Columbia Gorge was just kind of starting to really take off. Mm-hmm. And so initially, my, 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 first, um, my first thought was to make wines for the Columbia Gorge uh, mm-hmm. exclusively. But uh, I wanted to get organic grapes. And it was really hard at that time to find organic vineyards up in the Columbia Gorge. So. My first vintage was 2013, and I started off with um, two Pinot Noirs, one from the Washington side of the Columbia Gorge, and then one from Yamhill Carlton. So tell me about starting your own thing. You, you've obviously been in it a long time, like you said, a lot, a lot of learning and a lot of developing. So when you went to start, did you have a pretty good notion of what your brand was going to be, what your winemaking style was going to be? Did you have kind of an idea what you wanted to put out into the world? Yeah, I did. Um, I, when, when, I, when I was married, I spent a lot of time in France tasting, um, and I'd never heard of, um, I, think, I think they call them Van Naturel or Van Nature, but natural wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'd heard of them, but I hadn't really tasted them. And um, through, through my time in France, uh, I was exposed to those type of wines, and those were the type of wines that really spoke to me. And. Uh, I thought that with with all of my experience prior to that, I could uh, I could take that risk. Um, natural making those kind of wines is a little bit more risky than than taking more taking a more hands-on approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, my my goal when I first started was to try to make um, wines that are as close to just being grapes as possible, while still having them taste like wine and not like you know, kombucha or something else. Yeah. Grape juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a lot, a lot of the, the 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 natural wines, quote unquote. I wish there were another way to describe those wines, but um, are uh, the, the 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 flavor profiles are all over the board. You know, some of them taste like uh, vinegar. Some taste like kombucha. Some taste like wine. You don't even know that they're uh, without sulfur and without any filtration and all that stuff. But um, yeah, from, from the beginning, I knew that I wanted to make naked wines. That's pretty early for the natural wine. Natural wine is 2013, that era, that's not, not, was not very common. Yeah. And you're also looking for organic grapes a little bit ahead of the curve, too. So tell me about mm-hmm. why both those things were so important to you. Through my travels, um, and, you know, like I explained before, uh, being in France, mm-hmm. so being exposed to natural wines. And then uh, I, I had a, a, a 
chance meeting at a, at a house party in 2008 or 2009 with Alice Firing, uh, who, who's a natural wine uh, author, expert. And, um, and she, she tasted me on two of my first uh, natural wines. Uh, they were Katuri Carignan and an Arnott Roberts Syrah. And, um, and that, that was kind of when, when I, that opened the book for me for natural wines. Um, but it just seemed like it, it clicked with me. I, I really like simplicity. I like purity. Um, I, I like wines that, um, that, that taste like they're alive and that, that maybe sometimes are not um, analytically, analytically um, correct, mm -hmm. but are beautiful, beautifully flawed, if you want to call those flaws. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Like you say, a risky, a risky way to make wine. Tell me about the confidence level to put to to put a product like that out, knowing that it's it could be flawed or it's going to be trickier for you. You're going to have less tools, uh, and coming right out with it, uh, was it harder in the early days? Did you have to convince yourself or convince others that it was the right thing to do? I did. Uh, I went through kind of an ev evolution of that. Um, um, but I was just doing it by taste, and so as long as I was happy with it, and I've tasted, I think, enough wines that I, I, I know what what, um, there, you know, I, I hit a certain threshold where um, it might not be something that I that I feel I can back up or put out there. Um, like 2015 was a very warm year in Oregon, one of the warmest. I mean, we've had a lot of warm years lately, but. For me, 2015 was one of the, the warmest years, and uh, I really got into the, the whole no sulfur thing. And so 2015, I decided I was gonna make all my wines with zero sulfur added to them, just, just organic grapes and that's it. And um, I made some of, some of my favorite wines that year and some, uh, some wines that, uh, I, that are not my, not my favorites. <laughs> Two that I, I, I probably now would not have released. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they were, they were interesting, but they were just a little bit too too wacky. Um, so then, in 2016, I kind of dialed it back a bit and started using just a, just a little bit of sulfur um, right before bottling, uh, like five to ten parts per million, and just enough to keep the wine stable and bottle. Mm -hmm. And since then, I found that method has worked for me, and so that's kind of how I keep it now. Um, just a little bit of sulfur, and that's it. Tell me about the, the logistics of starting your own label. Uh, you have to find grapes. You have to find a place to make your wine. You have to you have to name yourself and, and design a label and all of that stuff. So, so tell me about the actual like logistics of, of finding all of those things as you're getting started. Uh, a lot of it's word of mouth. So if like the the, the Yakima vineyards I'd, I'd known about since the beginning, since Owen Rowe. So I, I'd kind of already been in this circle, um, and then. Um, after all my internships, and I uh, came back here to Oregon, um, I started working uh, a few seller jobs, permanent jobs, uh, while I was getting things started. I worked for, and um, just just through through meeting people, you know, like uh, um, like Chris Berg, for example, from Roots, uh, introduced me to Ken Kinsilla, who is my um, my main Pinot Noir vineyard that I still have now. Uh, so it's just being being in the industry. As far as uh, fruit sources, um, doing a little bit of research. If you're trying to, if you really want organic grapes, mm. um, those can be hard to come by. Even more in Yakima, uh, up in Washington, it's mm. just not really, they're not really doing that up there much. Um, and then uh, I think I kind of got lucky too. I was in the right place at the right time. We were kind of uh, coming out of the whole Pinot Noir sideways thing, and. Um, and um, I, um, I got my wines in, in front of um, some well-known tasters or sommeliers in New York City. And um, it kind of just grew from there. Um, I didn't have a lot of help. Uh, I, I kind of chose to do everything myself. I had a lot of good mentors. Um, Starting something without any financing was definitely one of the biggest parts. Mm. I think that's one thing that differentiates myself from some of my colleagues. 
and and that I mean I started from Whole Foods wages and my savings from working harvests. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my first year was was eight barrels of wine. It's about two hundred cases, and. Um, so logistically, I don't even know really, really how I did it, other than I just, I did everything myself. <laughs> yeah. So the, for, for most people, the hardest part of that is, is actually selling the wine and getting the wine. You mentioned New York City. Mm -hmm. Before the interview, we were talking about Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Tell me about learning to sell your wine and, and learning to put your own product out there into the marketplace. Uh, being present. Be, being, um, I chose to put my last name on, on my wines or on my business, which I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure if that was the smartest move, you know, because now I'm the face of the company and I'm only one person and um, if I ever want to sell, I don't think I will, but if I ever want to sell my business, it has my name attached mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually I, I kind of, um, I, wanted, I wanted my wines to be about, about the Pacific Northwest, not just, you know, because my wines are from Oregon and Washington. And... Um, I was I was kind of at the start, or, or maybe the second generation of, of some of the natural wine movement. So um, I think I I kind of was was into that a little bit earlier than than some other people. Um, I don't know. I just I, I think I got lucky. I, I don't know if I can give myself too much credit. I worked really hard. Uh, I went out in the market and hustled and was present. And um, yeah. <laughs> kind of like the question for for winemaking was there was there a moment when you felt like the business was going to succeed was there a sale you made or a contract you had that made it feel like this is sustainable I can do this yeah New York City so that's what kind of helped me launch um, and I uh, I went through a couple of distributors um, and that, that's really the only time I've had to switch distributors was in New York City um, and um, you know this this is kind of a, always been a hot topic and not not something that a lot of winemakers choose to make public. But I've been vocal about it, and that um, and that more more often than not, working with distributors, you're really rolling the dice as far as whether or not you're going to get paid for the product that you work so hard to make. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I uh, went through that pretty hard and, and had some really good life lessons with that. And so it was my third distributor. I broke up with two distributors and then I found uh, my current distributor is Jenny and Francois. And um, they're kind of some of the, the um, maybe not the first, but w one of the first natural wine distributors um, in New York City um, who, who was only promoting natural wines. There are a lot of distributors that, that have a little section, mm -hmm. you know, within mm -hmm. there. But, um, Jenny and Francois, and so signing on with Jenny and Francois uh, really helped me go to the, jump to the next level, mm -hmm. and that would have been 2015 or 16. And uh, I've had a lot of good momentum momentum with them since then, and then that's opened up a lot of doors throughout a lot of channels throughout the uh, rest of the country as far as distribution. So, uh, tell me about the evolution of your of your product. You started with two Pinots. Uh, since then, what have you expanded to make uh, variety-wise and style-wise, and, and do you have plans on more in the future? Yeah, started out with Pinot. That was my, my plan, was to, to really, that's kind of what we do here, you know? Um, and then I saw the writing on the wall, being present and, and being in markets. And the writing on the wall was um, that at least that market is over, oversaturated with Oregon Pinot Noir. And uh, Oregon Pinot Noir, at that time, and I think still now, um, has uh, a reputation of of being expensive. And um, I, I still can't, and, and, and wasn't able to at that time, uh, able to afford a sixty or seventy or eighty dollar bottle of Pinot Noir. And I didn't want to go out and, with a straight face, try to sell an $80 Pinot Noir if I can't even afford to buy that myself. I think that's a lot of money to pay for something that you're gonna pee out an hour or two later, you know? I mean, it's $80. Um, so, uh, expensive Pinot Noirs. I knew that I didn't wanna do that, uh, especially in this natural wine niche. 
Um, and you know, I can't compete with some of these producers who I've grown up you know, loving because um, they, they're already established. You know, um, Josh Bergstrom, for example, I grew up really liking his Pinot Noirs, mm -hmm. and, or Archery Summit, or Domain Serene, all these people, um, these, these brands, wineries, have been making Pinot Noirs for two decades before I started. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I love Pinot Noir, I love Oregon, but I wanted to, um, to, to put out something that, that wasn't Pinot Noir out there and kind of show a different side of the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And so um, 2014, uh, my next year, I made a little bit of Grenache. Um, what else did I make? I made a uh, Pinot Gris, like a, a skin contact Pinot Gris, Romato style. And then eventually started getting into Washington, and then Washington, there's there's a whole laundry list of uh, grape varieties to, to pick from there. Um, finding them organically grown is really hard. But uh, I found a handful of vineyards up there were all managed by my vineyard manager up there, Phil Klein. Phil Klein started uh, the Natchez Heights AVA in Washington. And that's an AVA that's focused on um, sustainable farming. So to be with, uh, to have that AVA attached, I think to your, your brand, you ha or your vineyard at least, you have, to, um, you have to abide by a certain list of rules. But I think it's at a very minimum being live certified. Uh, most of the vineyards in that AVA are organic, practicing or certified, or even biodynamic, there's a few up there. So in those vineyards, um, I've got Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, and French uh, grape varieties. So all the Bordeaux grape varieties to choose from, the Rhones, some Spanish, um, Trigue Nacional, uh, Portuguese grape that I love, uh, Bordello. So, so I had a lot of uh, a, a mix of grape varieties to choose from, and that's, that's kind of where I I've found where I am now. Um, I make about 20 different grape varieties. Some of them blended, some of them co-fermented, some red and whites, uh, and then I do a lot of single grape varieties as well. Have you had any difficulty introducing some of those to a market when people are not familiar with the grape or not familiar with the region? I have, especially at first when I was getting um, started, when, I was, when my brand was growing. Um, now, people are a lot more open-minded to these, these great varieties because they're coming from my brand. Um, Cunois, for example, is a great variety I've worked with for several years since so. Uh, Verdello from Portugal, Torriga Nacional, like I said before, Graciano from Spain. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people who are tasting these wines, it's their first time ever tasting them. And, um, and they're very curious and open-minded, and I think that's that's a change that I've seen in the market with consumers is that it seems like um, consumers are a lot more open-minded about trying new things, new grape varieties. They're not just set on, I only drink Chardonnay or all, all Syrah tastes like um, Australian Shiraz, you know, or cabs, you know, I only drink cab, that kind of thing. I think, uh, at, least, at least my customers, um, they're, they're very open-minded to trying new things. Mm -hmm. And, and I think a lot of wine drinkers now are a lot more educated than they were um, 15, 20 years ago. So you, you mentioned the kind of the difficulty of finding organic vineyards for some of the grapes you're interested in. Um, as you find vineyards that you're interested in, uh, tell me about uh, sort of developing those relationships with owners and, and kind of finding places you like and, and sort of uh, the expectations you have for the grapes. I mean, how do you balance like what the grower wants to do with what you want to make? Most of the growers that I work with were already working organic from the beginning. So, um, I'm, uh, I, I'm just, more, I, I'm looking at uh, consistency uh, and the relationship with them. Uh, f for those for those growers, I, I have had a few growers that were right on the cusp of, of, of um, being organic, and it was basically just one one herbicide spray away from being practicing organic. Um, and for me, herbicide use is kind of the threshold uh, about my my vineyard sources. Um, but it was um, it was. Finding a, a way that, that 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 made the deal um, 
the relationship between us sustainable for them mm-hmm. as, as a business. And um, there were some growers that tried it out and it didn't work for them, for their site. And I totally understand that. Um, for example, I've had two Malone, Malone de Bourgogne vineyards, mm-hmm. one in Umpqua and one in uh, the Willamette Valley in Yamhill Carlton, uh, who were moving in the direction of organic and then decided it wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I totally understand that. And um, for me, I've had to stop buying those grapes in those situations, but the feeling was, you know, am- amicable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there have been a few growers who, um, is, as long as I paid my bills on time and um, and I took a certain amount of the vineyard mm-hmm. or all the vineyard, let's say, uh, they they were willing to to work uh, organic. Has it gotten easier finding organic grapes you, that you are interested in? It has. Uh, I've I've seen over the last five years uh, a, a lot of vineyards, especially up in Washington, deciding that uh, that herbicides aren't needed and uh, that it, it's actually much easier to grow organic produce up there than it is down here because of the disease pressure. Mm-hmm. And um, specifically in the Natchez Heights AVA, or the area that I get my grapes from, uh, it's at about 17, 18, 1900 uh, feet elevation, where a lot of the, the rest of the valley, as far as I know, is down kind of around five to 700-ish. And so a big swing, a different different climate change, uh, temperatures and uh, disease pressure. Um, and uh, so no, I've seen I've seen a lot me a lot of people in in the Columbia uh, the Columbia Valley moving towards uh, organic produce, organic grapes. Let's talk about your winemaking space a little bit. We're here at, at Medici, obviously a shared space. I kind of have a co-op space. So tell us about. Uh, finding this as your winemaking place and about working with other people in, in a space like this. Yeah, so I've been here on and off since 2004. Um, I worked my second harvest here for Peter Rossback of Chenin. And uh, this has always been kind of like a second home to me. I've, I've kept in touch with Hal and, um, and for Memorial Day weekend and, and Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I'd always take my mom out to come out and taste, and this is one of the places that we'd come. And um, and so I'm kind of I, I kind of circled back around in 2000, the end of 2012, 2013, I think, the beginning of 2013. Uh, Peter Rossback had outgrown this space and reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to come and make wines for Hal Medici and make wines out of the space because he was leaving. And so it just kind of, the right thing happened at the right time. And uh, I moved in here and, um, and didn't end up making wines for Hal because Hal decided he didn't want to make wines anymore. He just wanted to grow grapes. Mm-hmm. But uh, I started my own thing here. And so um, that's kind of how I found Medici, was through Shanaean. What about balancing your needs with other people making wine on the similar schedule to you in the same space? Yeah, so when I was making 200 cases of wine or 500, 1,000 cases, um, I, uh, and we didn't have as many tenants at that time too. So we had a lot of space to work with. And um, so I was working for Roots Winery here. Uh, and then when, 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 my, when his work was done for the day, I'd clock off with him and then do my own thing. So it was pretty easy uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. However, now um, I've been growing since then and uh, Timothy Malone, you know, we've all been growing since we've moved in. Um, uh, we have Timothy Malone and Sheba Wishern are mm-hmm. the two other tenants here right now. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we have the facility kind of maxed out right now. And uh, I uh, make the most out of all three of us, but we all make a fair amount of wine. So uh, th- there isn't a, uh, a mediator here, so it's kind of everyone fends for themselves. And that can, that can make it tough mm-hmm. at times, especially during harvest. Mm-hmm. But uh, we just keep in good communication, uh, try to be flexible with, with each other and um, communicate through uh, like a Google calendar. Mm-hmm. And if, if someone's bottling in the tank room, we know that we're not able to work that day. Or, um, 
you know, if, if Shiba Wisher and um, they, they like to use gravity instead of pumps, so they need a forklift mm -hmm. to do that. And that means that the forklift is out of commission for three days, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So we just, we, we communicate through text or through Google Calendar and uh, it, it all works out pretty well. We all get along, we all do our own thing. Um, yeah. So uh, you mentioned that you obviously grown uh, and you're maxing out the space now. So do you have, as you sort of look ahead to the future for yourself, is it going to be here? Or are you going to you going to have to find a new space? Do you have like future kind of future plans for yourself and the brand? Yeah, I can't grow much anymore with with uh, with the other two tenants here. So I'm kind of for the time being, I'm kind of stuck where I am. Um, I'm not sure what the next few years will will hold. Um, it kind of just depends on what what Hal has in mind, um, or the other two tenants. Um, but I could see myself relocating to the Columbia Gorge. Uh, I've been looking for property there for the last couple of years to to plant my own vines, mm -hmm. and um, I really love it there. That's where my mom and dad are from. I could see myself relocating there, but. Um, I, could, uh, uh, I really like it down here. I, I like the proximity to Portland. So I'm kind of torn between somewhere in the Newburgh area. If I could find something industrial between here and Portland. Mm -hmm. uh, Parrot Mountain I like. The Chehalem Mountains I like a lot. But um, if I have to stay here for, for the next four or five years, I'm totally I'm fine with it because making a move kind of seems a little bit stressful <laughs> right now. <laughs> If you were planting your, if you were, if you did have property and were planting vines, what would you plant? If I was in a colder part of the Columbia Gorge, like Underwood or, or Hood River, I would probably go for a little bit more cool climate, grape varieties. Um, I really like uh, Alagote a lot. Um, I like Chenin Blanc, Gamay Noir, some of the Jura grape varieties, Pulsard, Trousseau, Simonian. Um, kind of uh, like some some of the, some of the a, a little bit more obscure uh, cold climate grape varieties. So not Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I'm a big fan of Gewürztraminer. I make I make uh, some orange Gewürztraminer. I think I'd like to plant some more of that. A lot of Gewürztraminer around the Willamette Valley, I think, is being crafted up or, or ripped up at the moment um, and and uh, and uh, crafted over to other stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pinot Gris as well, actually. I love Pinot Gris, too. Uh, and then if I was in the Dalles, let's say, for example, um, the shift is completely, you know, you go from the Hood River to the Dalles, it's green to orange, as far as aesthetically. And uh, so in the, if, if I were there, I'd be doing Grenache. I'd probably be doing Rhone grape varieties. Grenache, Morvedre Syrah, Grenache Blanc. So uh, we're we're in in June 2020. Obviously, we're dealing with uh, the pandemic here still, and uh, I'm curious how that has affected your business uh, and your kind of uh, current outlook and, and sort of future outlook for, for Swick Wines. Yeah, I've I've, I've had to, to really um, get dialed in uh, on DT direct to customer sales and uh, um, and social media. And I think I've done a good job with social media. Um, I, I haven't really had uh, a lot of experience up until now with direct to customer. So I've had to change that. Um, I need to get a, a, a decent website up, up and running. I don't know if you've checked out my website, but it's not really happening at the moment. And, uh, and people really want to buy wines and people are drinking wines still at home, you know, doing what they do. And um, so I've shifted a lot of my business over to direct to, to consumer sales and I've been doing kind of um, wine club type six pack mm -hmm. deals. Mm -hmm. um, most of my distributors deal with restaurants, I'd say about 80%. So outside of the bigger markets, New York and, and California, uh, I, I took a hit um, with the smaller markets. Um, because they're smaller markets and, and most of them are um, working with mostly restaurants. So 
Uh, I haven't seen I haven't seen a change really in in uh, total sales. I haven't seen a drop off, but I, I'd say that I'm working a lot differently than I was before. Mm -hmm. And um, like I was saying before, with uh, with travel, um, I'm not really able to travel and go out and work the market right now. And so I'm just down at my house, down the road, down by um, I live down by Jay Christopher, mm -hmm. kind of uh, King's Grade Road down there. And so, yeah, this is this is like pretty close to I, I, even before the pandemic. I was pretty self-quarantined, uh, other than I was traveling a lot. But when I'm here in Oregon, it's all work. Uh, you know, I'm I'm here at the winery and work a full day, usually seven days a week, and then I go home and just repeat it over and over again. Um, so in that regard, nothing's really changed. Um, but. It's given me a lot more time to be present and, and, and to, to go up to Yakima and be present in the vineyards up there. Mm. Um, that, that, that was something that I was missing before because I was so busy. And now uh, I'd say I'm up there every two or three weeks just looking at uh, the progress of things. And um, yeah, I've had a, had, a, had a lot more time just to be here. Does that change what you think about going forward? Are you are you gonna is the business model gonna change for good? Is your travel schedule gonna change for good, or are you kind of itching to get back to that? No, definitely not itching to get back to that. Uh, I was very burnt out. Um, I think uh, St. Patrick's Day, uh, I was still traveling, and that was really when the the stuff was hitting the fan as far as uh, the the pandemic. Um, but uh, I put in a lot of the, the groundwork and, and, and really hustled for uh, four years, 2015 through 2019. I was on the road a lot. And I think that really, that set me up for uh, what's going on now. And um, when things get better, no, I don't think I'll, I'll be doing that like I used to. Uh, I think I might go and maybe do you know, an annual portfolio tasting in New York with my distributor, with Jenny and Francois there, or I'll go and do a couple natural wine fairs, like the raw natural wine fair that happens every year. But um, the constant market visits, I, I probably won't do, or I don't think I need to do them anymore. I think I'd put in that work, so, yeah. So you've been around the Oregon wine industry for, for a while now. Uh, tell me what the, the, what the biggest changes are from when you got into Oregon wine to, to now. What is the biggest industry difference between now and or then and now? I've seen a lot of producers who are, who are focused on um, higher, higher priced Pinot Noirs making a, uh, a Willamette Valley AVA mm -hmm. wine. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen a lot of the, the younger generation of winemakers um, exploring outside of Pinot Noir. And um, kind of doing what, what I've been doing, I think. Um, a lot of winemakers, I think, don't like being out on the road. Um, and it can get pretty tedious at, at times. I liked it. I, I liked that rush, flying all the time. and and doing events and staying in hotels and meeting new people and all that, but uh, that got old after a while. Um, so yeah, biggest changes since when, uh, since when I started. Um, I'd say just the, 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 the focus on, on marketing and, and what people are doing with their branding. And um, I, I, I think that, like I was saying before, I think Pinot Noir, single vineyard Pinot Noirs, I think people are moving away from that and um, going for more of a, um, you know, a, a more approachable price point for a Pinot Noir. Um, selling more Chardonnay. I think a lot of producers are making a lot more Chardonnays now. Oregon Chardonnays have had a lot of traction. Um, and then, yeah, trying new new grape varieties that aren't um, really known in, in Oregon. And what about the future for Oregon wine? What do you see the next decade for Oregon wine looking like? Um, uh, I, th I think the people will probably diversify as far as great varieties. I think that once, uh, I think tourism, I think we had a good momentum of tourism going with tasting rooms and people coming to Oregon or the Pacific Northwest um, 
to experience everything that we have here, including wines. And I think, uh, I think once things get back to normal, I think we're going to see a huge boom of tourism and, um, and people are just finding out about the way of life here. We, we have a pretty cool thing here happening in, in Portland. And it's been a secret for a while, and I think the secret got out a little while ago. But um, uh, I think it'll be different than Sonoma or Napa or some of the other wine regions that, that people are, are uh, that, that have been more well-known than Oregon. But um, uh, I think it, it's going to be a, a, a destination. Something you said about uh, selling wine uh, made me think of a question I wanted to ask you earlier that I had forgotten, but you mentioned kind of the rush of being on the road and of, of selling wine, putting your wine in front of people, and I'm curious about developing the this, the thick skin you have to have, excuse me, <coughs> second, <laughs> get that book out of my nose. I'm, I'm curious about developing the, the sort of thick skin you need to have to put, especially a natural wine in front of people. Uh, and it might be something they don't, they don't expect, they've never had before, a variety they haven't had. Tell me about putting your first wines out of the marketplace and maybe how you've evolved as a, a, a seller since then. Um, it, it can be hard when, 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 when people uh, critique what you work so hard for. Sorry. It's all good. <laughs> that wasn't me. Um, and, um, uh, you know, having honest criticism from people can be hard, especially with natural wines because they, um, if, if you're talking to Psalms or, or uh, winemakers who, who, who don't like natural wines, and there's definitely a, a strong opinion uh, against natural wines mm -hmm. from some winemakers, um, you, you will get a lot of criticism. Um, and um, I've just learned to roll with it and um, not let it bother me. And it's made me work harder uh, in the cellar. Um, I think uh, that, that that making hands-off wines uh, is is kind of counter counterintuitive. You you do have to work harder to make them because um, you're just you're you're letting it all hang out. It's it's all you're you're dangling on the edge of, of a cliff, mm -hmm. and you don't know what's going to happen. With conventional wines, um, you have more safety. You have you have other things. That you're you're able to add and subtract and, and look at numbers and, um, and, and to, to make the wine go in a certain direction. You're not letting whatever happens happen. And, um, and so you know what you're gonna get. And uh, you're making more of a food product, you know? It's more like making, it's, re it's a recipe. Mm -hmm. Like if you wanna make, recreate a Snickers bar, you know? Or, or um, some of the Chardonnays maybe you taste down in Napa or, or uh, Sonoma that have a reputation of, of you know, being you know, a Chardonnay that everyone likes. They like to have consistency. They want it to taste the same every year. But uh, with natural wines and with uh, with Oregon, with our climate, uh, that's one of the fun things that I enjoy about being in Oregon is that every vintage is different and you get vintage variation. Um, um, I want to circle back around to your question though. Um, um, let's see. Let's see. How have things changed since? I'm curious about just you. You as a salesperson, you you, yeah. you you have your name on the label. You're taking your wine out to market. It's you're maybe you're getting criticism. You're you're dealing with it. And now I, how that sort of changed to now how you've sort of developed the, the skills and, and the thick skin. Um, I, I guess I, I just don't care what other people think anymore, because um, I'm I'm not out critiquing anyone else's wines or. Uh, or um, being catty or backstabby or talking down about um, other winemakers for whatever they do with their own craft. Um, I, uh, they, they, that's, that's what they choose for their, for their own wines and that's, that's, that's how they want to make their own wines and I think it's, that's great. Um, and I just, I, I, I wouldn't consider myself a, a, a phenomenal winemaker. Um, I think I'm really good at making the wines that, that I make, though, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. at my own style of wines. Now, whether or not those are everyone's cup of tea, I don't know. But um, the thing that, that, that has been um, that has been kind of a justification, I guess, for me is the fact that 
I've grown very fast. Um, so obviously I'm striking a chord with someone out there. Mm -hmm. Maybe not with the people who don't like my wines or, or what I'm doing or say that what I'm doing is bad or whatever, um, but people are excited about it. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it, what it's been is just um, just believing in myself and and not listening to what other people say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if someone were to come to you and say they wanted to join the Oregon wine industry tomorrow, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Uh, believe in yourself. Um, don't, uh, don't try to ride, ride coattails. Make sure that you're financially able to um, succeed or to grow. Um, and plan and prepare, work a few harvests, make mistakes, or see other winemakers make mistakes when, when you're, you know, interning and then learn from what they did wrong or learn from what they did right. If you get inspired by, by someone else. Yeah, and just, just not second guess, guess yourself. Just believe in yourself. Like it. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Mm, no, not that I can think of. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah. thank you so much for your thank time, you. for, your, for your thoughts and your stories here today. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.